0: This week, Bed, Bath & Beyond and Party City prepare to file Chapter 11, Oil & Gas Offshore Operational Support Services Provider and Nautical Solutions files Chapter 11, Sardis Simmons seeks to dismiss renewed suit challenging 2020 up-tier exchange. Hello and welcome to the REERC podcast, where we bring the latest developments in high yield to stress debt and bankruptcy. I'm David Zupkis. For this week's deep dive, we feature a replay from the REERC Primary Review series, where Joel Holsinger, co head of alternative credit at Ares Management, and REERC's James Holloway discuss the importance of buying assets and cash flows, yield curves, and purpose driven investing. It's Friday, January 13th. Bath and Beyond is planning to file for Chapter Eleven as soon as early February, which may include liquidation of existing inventory in a Goyan business sale, monetization of brands and intellectual property for e-commerce and a sale of subsidiary Bye Bye Baby. The operator of home goods retail stores is not likely to secure a sizable dip because of lack of unencumbered assets and expectations from existing ABL and filo lenders that their debt will be paid down if not paid off with the proceeds of a sale of the company's assets. The filing is also unlikely to include a prepack agreement with creditors, as the parties have not been able to agree on a restructuring plan, according to sources. Separately, the beleaguered retailer released results for its third fiscal quarter, disclosing adjusted EBITDA of negative 225 million compared with positive 40.6 million in the prior year quarter. Net sales dropped 33% year-over-year, year, while gross margin fell to 22.1% from 35.6%. CEO Sue Gove said that the acceleration of vendor terms and lower extended credit resulted in lower stock levels in the third quarter. The company is advised by Kirkland Ellis, Lazard, and Alex Partners, lenders to Bed Bath & Beyond's ABL facility, with J.P. Morgan as administrative agent, are working with FTI as financial advisor, while Six Street Partners as lender, an agent for the company's $375 million filo facility, is receiving advice from M3 Partners. Party City is preparing to file for bankruptcy in the coming weeks, targeting a late January to early February filing in the District of New Jersey. Informal talks for debt financing underway, sources told Reorg, who added the company has been looking for funding for a while. Certain holders of Party City's first lien notes, including Silverpoint Capital and Capital Group, have organized with Davis Polk as counsel and Lazard as financial advisor, as the balloon tableware and costumes retailers burn a significant amount of cash. The company is advised by Paul Weiss as counsel and Molus as financial advisor. Some holders of bonds of undistricted subsidiary Enneagram are working with Millbank as legal advisor. Nautical Solutions LLC, a cutoff Louisiana-based provider of Marine Operational Support Services and Solutions, and its wholly owned subsidiary, Nautical Solutions Texas LLC, filed voluntary Chapter 11 petitions in the U.S. Street Court for the Southern District of Texas on Monday reporting $500 million to $1 billion of both assets and liabilities. The debtors provide vessel support services to oil and gas exploration and extraction customers through a fleet of 29 offshore service vessels, or OSVs. The debtors report aggregated funded debt obligations of about $741 million. Amid a brutal downturn in the offshore industry which began in 2014, debtors began stacking certain of their vessels to reduce costs while retaining the rest in commission-ready condition to accept contracts, according to the debtor's disclosure statement. In 2019, the debtors sold 19 vessels to non-debtor affiliates for a total of $272 million in an effort to pay down funded debt obligations. Ultimately, the stacking efforts and vessel sales significantly delevered the debtor's business, reduced their interest burden, and preserved their liquidity to temporarily withstand the industry-wide downturn, while giving the debtors a runway to explore potential restructuring interaction, says the DS. Debtors entered bankruptcy with a prepackaged plan premised on an RSA reached with holders of 68% of first lien debt and 100% of equity. The voting deadline to the plan was Friday, January 6th. Class 3 first lien claims were the only class entitled to vote on the prepackaged plan, and the voting tabulation filed by the noticing agent shows that the plan was accepted by 66.67% of voters by number and 73.56% of voters by amount. The RSA requires emergence from Chapter 11 by no later than 60 days after the petition date. According to the first declaration of Roy Gallagher, Senior Managing Director and Cura, consulting the company's financial advisor, debtors decided to enter into the exchange and extend the new notes collateral package, having determined that a sale of the company's vessels would be value destructive without the support of various non-debtor ECO affiliates. According to Gallagher, the debtors assert that petition lenders and note holders have liens in the debtor's vessels only, and that a forced sale or non-consensual foreclosure of the vessels only would likely pose significant challenges. A separate firstly declaration of Richard Morgner, managing director at Jeffries, the company's investment banker, reveals an ad hoc group of turn loan lenders represented by White Case does not support the RSA and voted to reject the plan after months of negotiations with the debtors broke down. On January 9, Serta Simmons Betting and the company's super lenders asked New York Supreme Court Justice Andrea Masley to dismiss a group of non-participating lenders renewed suit challenging the company's 2020 up-tier exchange transaction. The company and the participating lenders attempted to distinguish U.S. District Judge Catherine Fayez's decision, allowing similar claims to proceed in the, in the federal Serta action and Justice Masley's own findings in the board writer's up-tier exchange action from the instant case. In June 2023, of the non-participating lenders sued for an injunction to prohibit CERTA from going forward with the transaction, but just as Masley denied the request, finding that the exchange did not appear to violate the plaintiff's sacred rights. The plaintiffs voluntarily dismissed that action shortly thereafter, but filed a new state court suit against CERTA and participating lenders in November 22, after Judge Faya denied CERTA's motion to dismiss a similar federal action brought by other non-participating lenders. According to CERDA, in the federal action, Judge Fahia found that the transaction amendments and subordination agreements were permitted by the credit agreement, but held that whether the transaction constituted an open market purchase could not be resolved on a motion dismissed based on the complaint found that action. The company and the participating lenders urged Justice Masley to adopt the first part of Judge Fahia's holding, but not the second. According to the participating lenders, the credit agreement allows the company to accomplish an, u- an exchange through a D- Dutch auction, which the agreement says must involve all lenders, or an open market purchase, which is not explicitly required to be offered to all lenders. Top Red Stories this week included 2023 Outlook, a tale of two maturity categories. Chapter 11 are liability management, healthcare, consumer discretionary, auto, financial services, sectors, in focus. 2022, a year in review. After record low first half, 2022 ends with Q4 as busiest quarter. Supply-side macro factors permeate filings. District court denies TOPS private equity investor defendants leave to appeal rulings of safe harbor, triggering creditor extension of look-back period. Fifth Circuit orders Just Energy Bankruptcy Court to abstain from storm Uri clawback litigation against ERCOT, finds Texas state court only forum to adjudicate claims. And now here's Kathy Ta from Los Angeles with the week ahead.
1: Hello, this is Kathy Tall. The week ahead is relatively busy after the Martin Luther King holiday on Monday. On Tuesday, the block by debtors will be in court for their second day hearing. The debtors are slated to ask for authorization to reconcile and honor client withdrawals from their wallet accounts and to continue their normal loan servicing activities. On Wednesday, the reverse mortgage debtors will be in court for their second day hearing after rescheduling the hearing from this week. The debtors will be pushing for go forward financing with dip notes lender parent BNGL holdings until DIP for Facility lender Texas Capital Bank. Former dip lender Leadenhall contests the relief saying the debtors space administrative insolvency with any further financing to only benefit insiders and professionals. Negotiations among the debtors, the debtors' parent, the UCC, and Leadenhall, are ongoing over a global resolution of the Chapter 11 cases. On Thursday, the endo-debtors will be in court to seek a 180-day extension of their exclusive plan filing and solicitation periods to June 12th and August 11th, respectively. They say the relief will facilitate the proposed sale of all of their assets to the ad hoc first lien group under their restructuring support agreement. The debtors' bid procedures motion will be heard at the same time. Both matters are hotly contested by several groups, including the Official Committee of Unsecured Creditors and the Ad Hoc Crossholder Group, who seek to end the debtor's exclusivity to pursue an alternative plan construct that would reinstate a portion of the first lien debt while equitizing the remainder. Also on Thursday, the Cabbage debtors will ask for approval of the disclosure statement to their amended plan to continue servicing their remaining loan portfolio until at least the effective date. Cross River Bank, the United States, on behalf of the Small Business Administration, and the U.S. Trustee have objected to the Disclosure statement saying it contains insufficient information and deficient opt out procedures. On Friday, the FTX debtors will be in court before Judge John Dorsey to protect their interest in 55 million shares of Robinhood stock held by Emergent by seeking an order to enforce the automatic stay to stop BlockFi's adversary proceeding against Emergent. The adversary proceeding was filed in BlockFi's own bid to recover the stock. FTX and BlockFi are among several parties asserting interest in the stock, which has been seized by the DOJ. Clovis Oncology's second-day hearing is scheduled for Friday after being continued from earlier this week. The debtors will ask for final approval of dip financing provided by pre-petition-secured lender 6G. The $75 million dip consists of $45 million in new money and a $30 million roll-up of pre-petition-secured debt. The debtors will also ask for approval of bid procedures in connection with their stocking horse agreement with Novartis for the purchase of the debtors' pipeline clinical candidate, FAB 2286. Under the procedures, the debtors would continue marketing FAB 2286, along with other assets, including the company's only marketed anti-cancer drug, Rebraca. That's it for me on this Friday, January 13th, wishing you a very happy MLK holiday weekend. This year marks the 40th anniversary of the holiday after President Ronald Reagan signed into law the bill that established the federal holiday honoring King's January 15th birthday. The campaign to honor nonviolent civil rights leader King, through a nationally recognized holiday took 32 years with efforts that included former senator ted kennedy the national football league and stevie wonder in particular in 1980 wonder recorded the hit song happy birthday as a call to action and over the next three years worked with Coretta scott king to get the bill passed by congress now back to you in new york
0: For this week's Deep dive, we feature a replay from the Reorg Primary View series, where Joe Holsinger, co-head of Alternative Credit at Aries Management, and Reorg's James Holloway discuss the importance of buying assets and cash flows, yield curves, and purpose-driven investing.
2: Good morning, I'm James Holloway, Reorg's man in Houston, Texas, and this is the Primary View, where we bring you incisive interviews and insight on issues affecting and impacting distressed debt, leverage finance, direct lending, high yield, municipals and covenants, Private credit, private equity, middle market, and private debt. And this week, it's our great honor to bring you Joel Holsinger, a partner, portfolio manager, and co-head of alternative credit at Aries Management. He joined Aries in 2019 from Fortress, where he was a partner in the credit group, a member of the management committee, and co-headed a liquid credit, which included leading the direct lending, structured equity, net leases, structured finance, and energy groups at Fortress. Prior to that, he was a founding partner at Adalia Capital, and he also held positions at Navigant Consulting, Wells Fargo, and Citi. Joel, thank you very much for making the time.
3: Great to to be here, and I appreciate you having me on.
2: Great, thank you. Now, um, the media in recent weeks has been streaked with stories about cryptocurrencies and the uh, curious collapse of FTX which almost reads as it was scripted by Monty Python. Now, now it strikes me that there is a valuable lesson about investing to be taken from this debacle. Um, Would you agree?
3: Well, first, I'm curious on which Monty Python skit we were going for there, James. Was that a, uh, is that a, a, it's not, I'm not dead yet, or is that a different Monty Python sketch when you're saying that?
2: Well, it could possibly be all of them, to be honest, but I'm not dead yet sounds like a good start.
3: Um, well, I love the analogy. I, I would say, you know, I, I look at it from the standpoint of, you know, we always talk about our lessons learned and what we do across alternative credit and And I'm very big on lessons learned. And, you know, the number one, you know, lesson learned we always talk about is investing in its core is pattern recognition. But number two is buy assets and cash flow. The rest is noise. So, You know, we've been very clear with investors over time that, you know, when we look at things like crypto, we don't see assets and we don't see cash flow. Um, So I'm not surprised at all with regards to the collapse. Um, And I think that obviously blockchain as a technology has a lot of applications and has a lot of uses on a go forward base. Um, But that does not necessarily mean that crypto itself has it. And I think it really... It really speaks to, you know, a, a lack of institutional due diligence at times. Um, I think that's the thing that's probably surprised me the most is is that lack of institutional due diligence that was done by certain parties. And because when you, when you think of, you know, our most recent scandals or frauds of the last decade or so, um, or even if you want to go back two decades, you could go to Enron, obviously, you could go to Theranos, you could go to you know i would not say fraud or scandals but definitely over uh, hyped valuations on weworks you have wire card fraud you have others there's a common theme but, you know there's a common theme which is you know if somebody tried to raise capital on some of those firms um, for 2 million dollars they get scoffed at but suddenly, when they get momentum and they get up to two billion dollars, it, it feels like people go with the "Hey, that person invested in it prior. Let me look at that," um, and they don't. They kind of skip on doing their institutional due diligence. And I think you know the lack of controls that were at FTX, the lack of underlying institutional. Clearly, not a lot of institutional due diligence was done, Um, not to mention the broader problem of there are no assets, there are no cash flows when you really dig through um, crypto on a general basis or if you want to go broader to NFTs and others.
2: Okay, great. Thank you. Now, one of the bigger issues for companies and investors right now are interest rates, rather their their management by the Federal Reserve. Um, We had a somewhat tame CPI print recently, and Governor Powell also said, uh, I think it was last week even, that the time for moderating the pace of rate hikes may come as soon as December. Then again, last week, we had what looked to be a strong jobs report, and I think also the prices paid component of PPI was strong this morning too. Um, what is your expectation for rates, and what does this uh, mean, or what opportunity set does this create for investors?
3: Yeah, you know it's interesting. We we do our own newsletter across alternative credit. We call it in the gaps because you know to to take a step back, alternative credit really in everything we do is asset focused. You know, if you think of direct lending or private equity, it's EBITDA or cash EBITDA focused. Everything we do is asset focused, but it's assets with contractual cash flows. And so, what do we mean by that? It's portfolios of loans, leases, financial receivables, and other things. And in that in that newsletter, we talk not just about our markets and the trends we're seeing and the things we're seeing across our markets, but we also talk about economic. Um, and some of the uh, we have a section in every one called Inside the Data, and you can see on my LinkedIn profile we post that on a quarterly basis. And you know it's interesting because basically the beginning of this year we said, look, we think a recession is coming. It wasn't necessarily a firm view; it was much more of an all credit view uh, across a lot of asset classes. We saw the arb was broken as we started to see rates increase. We saw asset yields that um, were inside of their liability yields. Um, so that's what we talk about when we talk about the arb. Um, and when we see those kind of situations. One market in particular always adjusts instantly, um, residential mortgages, because it's so rate driven. Um, And so as much as a lot of other parts of our markets and broad markets take a long time to adjust, you know, normally you can have three to nine months between large movements or volatility generally, or in rates where it takes three to nine months before you have a reset of those prices, mortgage rates reset. The next day right there's a rate sheet the next day and they have to instantly reset to those kind of underlying rates and so we saw a combination of a few things we saw obviously mortgage rates that were on the agency side three percent or less on the non-qualified mortgages you know around four percent widen out to over five percent for agency we even got this uh, over this fall we got above six percent and we saw non-QM rates go to seven very quickly. And, and they've even got to close to eight, and nine um, over this fall. And so one, you saw what that was going to do to housing, right? That was going to have a very impact on big on housing and, and what we call HBA, which is house price appreciation. But then we also saw, um, we started to see some cracks in the consumer. Um, so we started to see some cracks in the consumer where ironically, there's been some questions that were kind of asked by people on, you've seen a lot of different news out there where one view is that the consumer is totally healthy and other people going out and saying the consumer is totally broken. And the answer is, it depends on whether you zoom in or zoom out. If you zoom in the, and you look at just 2022 to 2021, every trend is worse. The consumer is borrowing more. The consumer is having higher defaults. The consumer savings rates have collapsed. Every, every stat is worse. If you zoom out and you say, let me look at the last 15 years, because of COVID and all of the impact of 2019 to 2020, what you've seen is that the consumer was doing better in the last couple of years than they've, than they've done forever, for a long time period, going back 10, 15 years. And so we kept waiting for a return to 2019 levels with regards to defaults, right? with regards to net losses across both prime, near prime and subprime. And what was interesting is that if you zoom out, to be clear, even sitting here today, prime and subprime are bare, are just now starting to return to 2019 levels. So you could actually say they're actually pretty healthy. They're not GFC type situations. What we started to see though, to your question, was near prime started to struggle, right? Near prime, um, part of that was a little bit of this you know, as one of my partners, Kevin Alexander likes to say, the sugar rush that was created by the excess stimulus. I mean, we had five to six trillion of stimulus. And now I think when we look back in the history books, we'll say the same. We probably needed a trillion or less of stimulus, right? The market recovered a lot better than we did. But in all fairness, my first pandemic, you know, I've, I've been investing for 25 years, I've gone through multiple cycles, but, you know, we're going back to Spanish flu before any of us have really dealt with this before. So it was unprecedented times. And that created this unprecedented kind of health of consumer because they had a whole bunch of money in their pocket. They got labor inflation early, frankly, before we got inflation, labor inflation came, especially to the lower end. So to your rates question, I frame all that. That's why we thought it was recession. But I also thought from the rate standpoint, and I, I have the same view today, that if you really looked at the economic situation and you looked where we were going and with the assumption we were heading into a recession sometime in probably 2023, it really meant the front end should be steep and the back end should be lower you know what i said in january was the the two years should be four and a half and the ten years should be two and a half we're getting a lot closer to that right we're, we're having the back end start to collapse and i look at it as from a rate standpoint is that a lot of this excess inflation was really driven by excess stimulus. It was that sugar rush. It was it was gonna naturally start to roll off, right? As you got through this, the supply chain and other things would fix itself. The sugar rush, the move from services to goods would flip back to goods to services and that in itself would slow it down. So I think there's a, a, a clear guide way to guide path to 4% inflation CPI basis. Now in fairness, getting the two is a whole nother matter. You know, it might, it might uh, take a little longer than people think. Clearly the one thing that really gets us below two is a recession. Um, and so with that in mind, I look at it as inflation is already starting to take care of itself. Um, I do think we're definitely headed into recession. I think unlike 2020, you know, because of COVID, this recession is gonna be, is gonna have true credit contraction because it's interesting because in 2020, we didn't really have credit contraction. In fact, we actually had credit expansion. Advance rates went up, um, rates went down, obviously. It actually fed into a lot of the asset bubbles that are starting to pop as we sit here today. Um, But now this, going forward, I think we end up, we've already gone full boat into credit uh, contraction, you know, and that's one thing that changed throughout the year. From January till September, I'd say August, we had the most organized dislocation I can remember, right? The most organized correction I can remember was this slow, slow correction kind of occurring over time. That changed in September. You know, it became very disorganized. In fairness, with the news going around um, with regards to the LDIs, the British pension funds, as well as if you add on Credit Suisse and and all of the news and the articles, we got pretty close to contagion. Um, And we definitely have the regulators unnaturally slowing down uh, banks, you know, trying to get the stress tests to higher tier one ratios. You've seen JP Morgan and others complain about that, trying to shrink the balance sheets, not to mention banking, investment banking is down, residential mortgages, which is a cash machine for them and a fee machine for them, all of a sudden turn into losses, you know, because of some of the rate moves. And so it's very different. So I do think that when you think of that rate picture, I think it's the same as I did in January. I think it's four and a half on the two year because you have to attack inflation with higher rates to put us into the recession. But I think the second that the Fed stops raising rates is the second the back end collapses. And I think we've already started to see the back end correct itself due to the anticipation of that. So we had 75 basis points. Let's say it's 50 basis points next month. I don't think there's that many more because I think that, I think we're seeing this economy slow in a very quick manner And as much as we had a healthy labor print, I think a lot of that, it's interesting, we've got this bifurcated labor market right now. We're seeing more job losses on high-end jobs than we are on low-end jobs, which is exactly opposite of normal recession. Normally it's the low-end jobs. I look at that's because the low-end jobs were that far behind. But we're seeing a lot of noise from the market and other things where even that's correcting itself. And I think we are going towards that will turn over the next quarter or two. Um, along with the other recessionary signs that we're already starting to see in the market, it's okay, a long great. answer, but I, I wanted to make no, sure I covered all the bases. No, so.
2: very wise words. Um, this is, and this is a bit of a follow-on from that. But you had a very interesting poke on Le- LinkedIn recently regarding the sixty uh, forty investing model, and you referred to it as flawed. And I think a lot of people of our age sort of grew up with that, sort of drilled into your head. But I wanted just to see if I could get you to elaborate on that on that idea.
3: Well, I think that the flaw was more where rates were. Um, So if you looked at fixed income over the last several years, like I didn't own any personally, right? Anything that was longer duration on a fixed rate. And so there's some, uh, if you think if you're an insurance company, you have to have fixed rate because you have to have matched assets for your matched liabilities. But if you think of pension funds and endowments and retail investors and others, you ended up having this situation where people stayed in fixed income because that's what they always did. Right. You know, it goes to that generational piece and a lot of it driven off of the concept of a 6040 model. And the problem with that was if you let's take a step back to two years ago or a year and a half ago. What were you waiting for? You know, if you were right, you made nothing. And if you were wrong, you lost a lot of money, you know, mm-hmm. because rates were low. And, and ironically, normally that in credit, you say, let me go up in quality. Well it was actually worse because the higher you went up in quality, right? If you go to high grade on other assets, then they were even lower rates, right? So longer duration, lower rates or even treasuries if you were to go to longer duration treasuries, anything that had duration risk on on fixed income was really a, you know, heads I heads I lose, tails I lose, right? I either am right and rates stay low and I make nothing along the way or I'm wrong and I could be down 20 or 30%. And so the flaw of the 60-40 wasn't necessarily the model. The problem is, is that when you apply a model to a totally different time and period, it doesn't work, right? It was really driven by where you were on just the upside downside. I mean, investing at its core is all about probability analysis. And so if you have a scenario where, you know, even if you thought the probability was high, that rates were staying low, I'm making nothing along the way. I'm just taking default and recovery risk versus if rates go, if rates were to go up, obviously I'm taking huge duration, and huge rate risk. So you could argue right now, as we sit here today, there's a trade, right? Where you do believe that rates are going down on a shorter term basis and there's money to be made over the next six to 12 months. And that's played out in that same LinkedIn. I kind of made that comment. I said, there is a trade there in one of the comments. And if you think of that trade, that's a short-term trade, but let's say I'm right. And we go back to a two and a half. Well, once it's at two and a half again, or if you're getting a high grade at three and a half or four, it's the same flawed problem. It's the same flawed problem of, are you getting paid enough for the risk of either higher rates or recessionary and lower recoveries? And so that's really the flaw was fundamentally applying it at all times, right? Whenever you try to apply the same thing in all parts of the market, A 60-40 model when rates are at, you know, if you go back to, I always tell the team, I've been doing this for 25 years, and I got a lot of 20-year-olds and early 30-year-olds. And I said, just to be clear, my first 10 years of my career, I thought that Blybor was just stuck at five, right? (laughs) You know, it was just five to five and a half was where it printed for a long time. So I do believe long-term rates do stay lower for longer because if you look at the demographics across the globe, Um, I just returned from India. Even India is slowed dramatically on their demographic growth. Um, If you look at China and Russia and Japan um, and Eastern and Southern Europe, they're shrinking, right? They've already started shrinking. And if you think of GDP, you know, if you really look at the core to it, it's driven by participation rates and it's driven by productivity. Well, investments in productivity have been lower across most of the developed world. The only two countries that have really developed, that have done a big R&D on productivity is China and U.S. And so if you look at even markets we think of like South America as having high birth rates, they're not. They've actually slowed dramatically in the last 10 to 15 years If you look at India, they basically have the same birth rate as we do at this point. Now, there's parts of India that have a high birth rate, right, in Uttar Pradesh and others. But if you look at the rest of India, it's actually lower. And on a blended basis, it's pretty close. So the other is labor participation rate. Well, in the end, if you don't have high demographics, if you don't have high growth, then you're going to have low, the participation rate can't increase much. So you're going to, by definition, have less um, growth in the underlying GDP. And so if productivity and the and the labor productivity rate is, is re- decreasing, you kind of believe in lower GDP on a global basis. And if you have lower GDP, it kind of correlates with lower rates, right? It kind of correlates to that piece. That's been my broader, like you can look at the next six months, 12 months, but if you take a longer term view over the next decade or so, I mean, China loses more people by the end of this century than the U.S. has.
2: Gosh. Okay. Well, you mentioned that you've been traveling in, in India and some other various places, but what sort of things are you hearing from investors and, and clients over there? What are the things that are keeping them awake at night?
3: So I've been traveling. So there's two different parts of our travel. I'm going to divide this up. Um, um, so one, the India trip, to be clear, was actually, uh, and I think we're going to talk about this a little later, is the charity tie-in that we have. Um Uh, But if you if you look at more investors, um, so the India was 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 more with our Mumbai office for Aries, as well as some of the charity diligence we are doing. If you look at other travel across Middle East and Asia and Europe, as well as across the US, you know, you've got investors that are obviously I think the thing that spooked everybody was some of the movements in LDI. You know, all things change when contagion comes close. I think broadly, obviously, People have moved from, you know, uh, uh, worried about small corrections to everybody's pretty much on the p- same page of re- a recession is coming and preparing for that, which does change your your kind of game plan and the way that they go about that and the way that they attack it. Um, I think that obviously, if you look at it on a on a global basis, I mean, most of the investing we do across alternative credits in North America and in Europe, and there are two different situations. I think that. The U.S. is able to attack inflation in a much harder way with rates as well as the pressure I spoke about earlier with regards to banks. If you look at it from a European standpoint, it's harder because if you attack rates from the ECB basis in a big way and you start to have huge increases in rates like the Fed has done, what happens to your weaker ECB members? What happens to Italy's rates, right, in a situation where um, you start to increase rates? Because you could end up having a very bifurcated market with much, much higher yields that are unsustainable for some countries on a longer-term basis, and you could create your own crisis. And so that plus, obviously, you have a war going on in the continent with regards to Ukraine, makes it a harder set of, uh, of facts to kind of deal with than in the US. So I'm, I'm actually pretty hopeful from a US standpoint, as much as I'm saying recession, because I think that recessions are good. You know, a little flushing is good, a little bit of cleaning up. I think actually it's part of the problem coming out of the GFC. We, we, we lost the ability to take pain. That's part of the economic cycle. You know, at its simplest basis, if you think of economic cycles, I I like to say that money makes the world go round, credit makes money go round. Every asset class is valued off of credit. And all the credit cycles are is credit expanding and credit contracting, right? And that creates obviously a lot of, um, uh, it, it creates a lot of pain behind it sometimes with regards to that. But a lot of that's generally flushing out those things that need to get flushed out. It's the tide going out and seeing who is naked, which creates obviously you see the fraud um, in the FDX's and others. Um, you see the weaker business models that can't survive. Um, that's good, right That kind of creates a balance in systems and other things. and so there's a lot of nervousness from investors um, as you're as you're kind of traveling. Um, That nervousness, you know, I I think that everybody doesn't feel as good about their VC portfolio as they did before. I've been obviously we don't invest in VC, but I don't know that there's been a bigger bubble um, with regards to overvaluations and the way that those valuations kind of happen. And I'm not talking crypto. I'm cross talking across a broader against venture capital. I think that a lot of uh, tailwinds that existed um, in private equity are now turned into headwinds because of rising rates and uh, and credit contraction and others on valuations and others. And I think credit, obviously, everybody, you know, leans towards looking at credit because it's a good place to look for safety. You know, what do you do when the arb is broken? When the assets yielding less than the liabilities, you'd rather own the liability. Right, You'd rather own the liability because the equity value in that asset isn't going to be that much if it's got a negative ARB on it. And so I think that that's where the focus has been is that pivot towards credit and obviously plays to the strengths across what we do at ARIES and what we do across alternative credit.
2: Okay, great. Thank you. Um, now I know ESG is something a, a big passion of yours, and I think just the, the, the idea of it has come under a, a bit of fire recently. I think most prominently, Florida divest about two billion from BlackRock. I, I think though that was mainly related to their, Green energy um, thoughts, but I think your approach to it is more to do in the areas of healthcare and education. Can you just talk a little bit about what you do and just um, how investors or firms like Aries can contribute through uh, through doing these things?
3: Yeah, I think on a broad basis, you know, we, you know, in in a little bit of a personal view, which is there, there's, there's been a lot on ESG with regards to negative screens, we're not going to invest in this industry, we're not going to invest in that asset class. And I think that, I think that, you know, where ESG really needs to move is to a positive, um, which is how do we actually improve things. And, and, And I would say, you know, it, in, in many ways, what we're doing from an ARI standpoint, um, specific to one of our flagship or two of our flagship funds as it relates to alternative credit, is more that positive impact. But I would call it even less ESG. I'd call it kind of um, purpose-driven funds. Um, I'm hoping it becomes a thing. I'm, I'm hoping we've started a trend. Um, and what we did, and, and, and you can see this through some of our uh, press release on one of the flagship funds, is on that flagship fund, we set it up um, where at least 10% of the of the promote of that fund, our piece, uh, goes to global health and global education charities, half from us and half from Aries, half from the team uh, on the investing side and half from Aries. And you know, that that that's very substantial dollars because we run big funds um, across both of those flagship funds. But it really kind of goes to how do we do more how do we have a positive impact you know and and how do we have a higher social tie to that i mentioned earlier my india trip um that was in many ways inspired from an india trip i did five years ago um i know you know from your background you and i have a similar common theme which is we're both preacher's kids um i'm i'm a poor preacher's kid originally went to high school in boise idaho was born in oregon um, and I didn't know this world existed, frankly. I, I originally went to college to be an engineering, engineer because I was good at math and science, kind of pivoted to finance and stumbled backwards into a career that started with Citigroup and went from there. And I've been very, you know, very blessed and very lucky in life to, to be able to be here. And I love investing. I absolutely, I think it's the greatest learning curve there is. I will never retire. Um, I'm going to do this in, in, as long as the mental facilities are there. But about five years ago, I did a trip to India. And so, you know, cause I did come from humble roots. Um, you know, I decided a long time ago to give all of it away. And my wife also, her, her dad was originally from Peru and he, she was second generation immigrant and had kind of the same view of, look, we are lucky. We're supposed to, you know, kind of do that. And we had, I, we had part targeted it towards global health at the time. And global health charities, and so before I had a lot, I, I had agreed I'd give it away. So it always is easier when it's not a lot. And so as that grew, I got more involved um, over the last twelve years or so with global health charities. And I've been on the board of PATH Global Health um, uh, for the last five years plus. And PATH Global Health, you know, started uh, donating to them about a decade ago. They're the largest, one of the largest INGOs on vaccinations in the developing world. Um, So if you think a lot of the work Gates Foundation does, Path Global Health is their largest single check. And so I did a trip to India um, around joining the board. Um, And I did this trip to India and I really walked away with, you know, how can I be most impactful and give on a global health? And I realized two things. One, my last biology class was in high school. And so I was really useless in the field. Um, So it was very good to see the impact that they were having. It was very good to go up that learning curve. And I learned a lot and I've definitely honed up on my biology since then. Um, But then the second part of it was I really, I have two value adds. One is, you know, I can be a good board member because I've sat on a lot of for-profit companies, you know, tens and tens of them over time, as well as I can write checks. And so I came back with the idea of what if, that what if we tied the flagship fund into a charitable tie-in, um, which is what we ended up coming up with, with our charitable donation. And I'm hoping that it becomes a thing. I'm hoping that other uh, firms and funds will do the same thing. It's inspired some other things we've done across ARIES. It's inspired a broader foundation that ARIES now has, which has made, I think, uh, about $60 million of total commitments, out, having nothing to do with what we've done with our flagship fund. Um, and it's, it's inspired some other, um, copycats, which I'm okay with, uh, because I look at it as it doesn't have to be 10%. It it doesn't, you know, it could be 1%. It could be 0.5%. It doesn't have to be global health and global education. It could be any, wherever your passion is, but in the end, it's a way to do more. It's a way to have a positive versus a negative screen. It's a way to make a real difference in the world. I think that it, you know, there's been a lot on impact investing. I look at it as the investing we do has nothing to do with the charitable tie-in, but it has a bigger impact in many ways than a lot of impact investing does because you're really getting the money into the hands of those. And we brought nine of uh, people from our team over to India and we did diligence with six different charities, three global health, global education, and you know you're meeting with groups where you can truly change somebody's life for twenty dollars a year, right? And the average cost to save a life is estimated by GiveWell and others about $3,500 in global health. So if you think about it, and you think of the dollars we all manage and the dollars and the impact we can have and what you can do with that, you can truly, truly have an impact on not, not a few lives, not even tens of thousands of lives, but hundreds of thousands of potentially more. And so It really reinforced um, that ability to give back and what we're trying to do. Um, And I think we'll have, you know, is something that I'd like to see the industry move towards, um, which is having that bigger impact and having it in a truly impactful way with purpose driven funds.
2: Okay, great. Thank you very much. Very wise words from Joel Holsinger. And thank you for making the time to be with us, sir.
0: Thank you again for listening to this Rear Weekly Review. Find all our podcasts on the rear.com webinars and podcast page, as well as Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Amazon. Hope your families are healthy and safe. Have a great weekend, and see you next Friday.